yes, yes, yes. Welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of Ben Frank Now. I'm your host, Frank, of course. And that was a quick intro I just did right there. But hope everybody's doing wonderful on this beautiful Sunday football evening. And of course, it's Sunday with Stallings. Been a while, so um, we're going to get right into it. Brian, are you there? Mr. Stallings, are you there? <laughs> Gosh. Can you hear me? Can you, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. I hear you before you start oh, laughing. Man. I'm like, whoa, 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 man. whoa. Okay, my bad. I thought I had myself muted when I said, what's up, man? You didn't say anything. I was, <laughs> I was on mute. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, man. Yeah, um, we talked this past week, and I'm I'm guessing you're really looking forward to today's conversation. Um, the topic you brought to me. You would like to talk, you know, have a panel of teachers and um, talk to them. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we done talked. We, t- we talked about a lot of stuff in this show in the three months we've been doing this, man. And you know, we talked a lot about you know systematic racism and you know fatherhood and I mean everything, man. So I was like, you know, what the other thing that I would really love to talk about at some point was education, like, you know, the educational system. Is it working for us? Is it working for all people? Is it, you know, are there are things that we need to address that we're kind of like, you know, skimming over and not, you know, and not really put much effort and emphasis onto it. So I was like, yeah, if, if, y- if y'all could grab, a, you know, a panel, uh, you know, people from different, you know, different parts of the spectrum of, uh, of education, then, yeah, let's have a conversation about it. Sound good, man. Sound good. So we can go ahead and introduce our guests, and um, they're going to give you a little bio about themselves, um, what they do, where they're from, and all that good stuff before we get started. But, Brian, let's start with you, though, you know, so everybody know who you are and what you do and all that good stuff, man. Gotcha. Yeah, so, um, again, I'm Brian. Uh, this is now my 16th year in education. I've spent all of it uh, in the world of special education. I've worked primarily with students with the emotional and behavior disorders. Um, I got my master's in special education about, what, 12 years ago. Currently went back to school to get my administrative license. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's a passion of mine. I mean, it's, it's you know, I work with um, a lot of uh, kids with disadvantages um, socioeconomically, um, you know, or, you know, emotionally, uh, behaviorally, educationally, you know, so there's, there's just a thing that I, I enjoy working with them types of types of kids and so um yeah that's it good deal good deal and like i said it's a bit frank now show sunday was stolen you heard the man himself mr brian Stallings. hey let's go ahead and talk to mr terry riley mr riley thank you thank you for joining the show can you hear me sir Yes, sir. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, you ought to call me sir, man. Hell, I just like to say that, man. Just trying to be all professional and shit, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay. yeah. I'm from the country. That's, I'm, I'm a country boy, man. That's the manners. That's how I roll. That's how we roll. So, all right. um, I'm Terry Riley. Uh, um, I'm in, uh, like I said, I'm a country boy from Crockett, Texas. I moved out here to Dallas. My wife and I, we moved out here about 10 years ago. <clears throat> been a part of schools for um, that entire 10 years. I've been in education. I started out as an English teacher. I taught uh, middle school English, sixth, seventh grade um, writing, and then uh, moved into administration about um, five years ago. This will be my sixth year as an assistant principal. Um, I got my master's in 2009, and then I, um, I'm currently working on my doctorate. Um, and I like 
education is just key. That's the whole reason I got into it was to um, basically show kids like me that that you can make it out, that there's a different way that like it was all about really for me, it was all about young black boys and I, I don't apologize for it um, in my interviews and things like that. I tell them that this is my passion. I'm here for all kids, but specifically for, for kids that look like me. So um, I have a, a beautiful wife. Uh, we've been married for eight years um, and four amazing kids and name my world. And that's it, man. That's me in a nutshell. Mr. Raleigh, thank you, sir. Crockett, Texas. I used to work uh, work for TDCJ and Love Lady. So, oh, okay, East Town. <laughs> yeah, that's East Town. Yeah, um, Victor Simon, all them guys from um, Crockett. All these. <laughs> that's what's up, man. That's what's up. Yes, sir. We all know everybody. That yeah, I know. Way, man. Victor always talk about yeah. that little Earl, little Earl barbecue, all that stuff. He tried to kick back up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> small world, man. Small world. Yes, sir. Okay, now I'm kind of nervous because I butchered her name earlier. So, <laughs> Miss Felicia Jimenez, is that correct, ma'am? You got it. Also, you know I was going to say Felicia. I don't. I'm sorry, but yes. Uh, no, I'm, that's it. You got it. Okay, yes, ma'am. Yes, go ahead. The mic's yours, ma'am. Sure. Um. So I live in the. Uh, I okay. So I live in the Dallas area. Been here pretty much my whole life. Not born here, but raised here. So I'm a Texan through and through, pretty much. Um, I teach English, 10th grade. Uh, got my master's. I went to Brigham Young University in Idaho. I um, got my master's from Ashford University. Um, I mean, there's a lot to say, but I'm probably going to tell a whole bunch of it. I've been in education for four years now. Um, it makes me very happy. The happiest times of my life have always been when I was teaching someone and also learning in that same environment. Uh, just like Terry, um, I'm here for kids who look like me. Um, that's super important for me. Uh, I always say you cannot be what you cannot see. Mm. So when kids see mm. you um, and they see that you look like them, they know that they can also be that. They can aspire to that. Uh, not that anybody really is aspiring to be teachers these days, <laughs> but they can see that you can make it. You feel me? Ain't right. nobody really like, I just want to be, but, you know, so uh, that's really important to me. And, um yeah, so that's, that I'm excited to talk about this because I love talking about education. Hey, I respect it. I appreciate oh, it. Yeah, go ahead. Hold up, because I got to get this out, too. I am also married. My husband would have been like, really? <laughs> okay, so I am also married happily, by the way, even though I forgot for two seconds to say it. Um, <laughs> I am happily married of eight years. We just hit our eight-year anniversary. Congratulations. Oh, my husband is so lovely. I got to make up for that, too, but he really is. Uh, and I have a five-year-old daughter, Naomi, who drives us crazy, and uh, yeah, she's fun. So I just had to get that out. Congratulations! You know, yeah, you got to throw it out there, man. You know, Dad might not like that. Oh man, got a lot of Texas in the house. Hey, let me go to Miss Kelly Palmer. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, that's loud. All right, go ahead. A little bio intro yourself. 
Uh, I'm Kelly Palmer. I am an assistant principal at a high school now. I was at a middle school prior. I have always worked in low socioeconomic schools, diverse schools on purpose. I grew up with a dad that was um, driven by the same type environment. Um, so I have a daughter that is six. She's biracial. Um, and she's like the size of a 10 year old. So that's awesome. <laughs> um, where's she, like a- where's she at? She's at my parents right now. All right. Tell her dad I said hi. I will. <laughs> um, so I have um, always been driven by the toughest kids. Um, those are the ones that I work to build the relationship with and also try to help them build relationships with their teachers. So I really feel like that's my passion, my drive. Um, my goal is always to leave somewhere better than I found it. So and work with the teachers on working with our toughest children. Um, and oftentimes our teachers see the toughest children being children that don't look like them. So, um, I really try to help bridge that gap as much as I can, but, uh, I was in San Antonio for 10 years and now I've been in Bryan for almost six. So thank you. I really do appreciate you coming on. Um, just putting everything inside our personal life. Thank you for coming on though. Seriously. Okay, Mr. Jason Setliff, my Turhole homeboy. So, um, yeah. yeah, go ahead, buddy. And um, Kelly, of course, is um, Caucasian, and my buddy Jason is also. So, he's not showing his face, but Jason, go ahead. This your mic's yours, buddy. How's everybody doing? My name's Jason. Uh, I've been a school teacher for 18 years now. Uh, I've also taught basically in lower socioeconomic settings. My first job uh, was in my hometown of Terre Haute. Uh, From there, I went to a residential facility where we uh, specialized with working with kids in street gangs. Um, There was also a a psychiatric unit and a sex offender unit. Kind of went a little change of pace for the last 11 years. I uh, have been teaching in a really poor but rural school corporation in Indiana. Um, And I've done various things there, coaching uh, I'm a I'm a special ed teacher. So and I also start off with emotional disabilities as well. So right now I'm in the middle school in this area. I do learning disabilities. Uh, like I said, it is a poor but rural area. Uh, my wife is in Terre Haute. She's a school counselor. She's been a school counselor for 18 years and she's doing her, her uh, internship to be an administrator. So we're a family of educators. So I'm just glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Jason, I appreciate it, man. Uh, we go way back, so I always have respect for you, man. I th- I thank you seriously for taking your time out um, coming on the show. Bro. No, no doubt, no, no, no. I- I'm thank you for having me here. Really, right seriously. on, right on. Hey, and ma'am, last but not least, Mister Carl Williams, are you there? Takara, she said she might need a. Uh, there she is. Sorry, <laughs> yes, Takara, can you hear me? All right, well, you need to turn your volume up and introduce yourself for me, please. Uh, yeah, something like that, Verizon, but go ahead. Okay, no problem. Uh, I'm Takara Williams. I am the non-teacher in this whole group, by the way. Um, and I am from Call Station, Brian Call Station, Texas. And uh, so I know a lot of people that Kelly knows. Um, so yeah. Um, and 
I am here, and that's it. That's it. I mean, that was like everybody gave this fantastic intro, and you just basically, I'm from College Station. That's it. I'm College Station. Currently, I work. Um, apparently, I work for the CIA. I don't work for the CIA. Um, it's a joke. Uh, but um, he definitely does. <laughs> oh wow. I work in consulting um, and uh, help run a company. Good deal. Good yeah. deal, Miss Woods. I appreciate you coming on and bringing the guests on the show also. And um, it's going to be good. I'm very um, excited about this. We have, what, one, two, four, Texas, two, Indiana. Wow. This will be, yeah, two, Indiana, four, Texas. This is interesting. So, Brian, go ahead and kick it off. Let's get it started, buddy. On the Ben Frank Now Show, um, make sure you hit us up via email at Ben underscore Frank underscore now 911 at gmail.com or hit us on the gram, as the kids will say, the gram, at Ben Frank Now 911 at Instagram. So, Brian, go ahead and start it up for us, please. All right. So, hey, so the way, the way I want to do this, I want to just throw a question out there and give everybody an opportunity to chime in and see what they want to say. Uh, and if you want to kind of, uh, you know, go off on another direction after that, and that's fine. Uh, but I do have a core of about six questions I want to ask. But the first question I want to ask everyone is, what? how do you define education and what's the point of school? Because what I found out, the reason why I'm asking that question is that <clears throat> I think that when we look at education and, we, and school, I think that a lot of times we kind of get fixated on education being what it was on how we were raised or how our parents were raised. And is education still the same? Is it, should we change the way we look at education here in the 21st century? So anybody can go ahead and take off with that one and we'll go from there. Open platform, anybody want to grab it, take it. What is education and what's the purpose of school? I think that, um, that, First, the the first question and the second question that you asked, I, th- I feel like they have the same meaning, but they're they're different. So, like, is education still the same? Yes. Should education still be the same? No. And so, like, how we define it now is defined based off of you know reading, writing, arithmetic. You you have your English classes, you have your reading classes, you have um, social studies, and and that's still the framework because that's the framework that we have built in in order to get kids to college. But I think there should be some shifts in, in how, not necessarily how, but what we, what we teach our kids because school was initially created for like assembly line workers and to, to math produce citizens that worked in factories. Right. But we don't have those types of jobs anymore. And, um, in a lot of cases, we aren't preparing our students for the jobs that will be available available for them in the future. So, again, is education still the same? Yes. But should it be? Not at all. And, and it's going to take courage in order for people to start changing that. So so you said you, you believe that the school was created for to develop factory workers, future factory workers? Yes. Like so, when, you think about, when you think about when school was first invented, right, when, 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 when they decided that we're going to have this, have public education, education for everyone, right? It was to produce basically citizens. You produce, produced citizens for 
that that economy, that type of economy, which was a, a, a blue collar economy. Like you were you were building, you were manufacturing. Right. And that was the I guess the commerce at the time. But now we live in the age of ideas. We live in the age of technology. We live in the age of where you can get paid for sitting in front of a computer and talking to people about education. Like we live in that type of world, you feel me? But we're still in education as a whole. We're still focused on a particular set of skills, which is just mass reducing. Like we're, we're, we're not, it's, it's slowly shifting toward building thinkers, right? Which is, is what, where, where we are as, as far as what makes money these days but it's still using an old antiquated system. Hey, can I chime in on that? Um, I agree with you, Terry. And one thing that I think that's a kind of a problem really in education is we're so fixated on making sure that everybody passes algebra one. And we've got a lot of kids that will never pass algebra one yet. They're very talented in other areas. So we've got to figure out a way to make sure that we harness those skills where they can be successful in life without having to pass a test as a freshman or sophomore in high school. Because once they take that test and they fail it, then the next year, you know, it's, it's going to be even more, it's going to be tougher. They're in classes with kids year younger than them. And then if they don't pass your chances of dropping out are extremely high. So I think what we've done is we've set some standards that are kind of, kind of unattainable for some. And yet those kids uh, still have a, a large degree of success that we still need to harness. So I agree with you 100% on that. I think we, I think we are still, we still need to teach, but at the same time, I think some of the ways we're teaching is in, in a way, not only just outdated, but it's designed for some kids to, to fall off the system. So, so, uh, so a conversation, and I'm, I'm just going to make this situation, make it a little bit, you know, minute to, to make my point, but I've had, I've heard teachers who, you know, say that there's no point in teaching a bunch of um, math computation because of the calculator. The calculator is so readily available. It's on your phone. You can, you know, you can go anywhere to get a phone. So why spend all this time on computation when there are actual uh, skills that may need the computation, but you can use your calculator and just teach the skills rather than computation? What do y'all, what do y'all think about that? Okay, as a former math person, <laughs> I was a math instructional coach for eight years and I taught math as well. So um, for me, I think there's purpose in both. I am very much a believer in the calculator and all the things the calculator can do, but I understand the importance of understanding the process that's involved and how you get there. And I feel like we focus so much, like you guys are talking on this mass production of kids that can all do the same thing. And I don't know why we would want all kids to do the same thing. Um, like other people have said, you know, we have different strengths. So for me as a former math person, I want a kid to understand that I'm taking this number and I'm dividing it into so many groups of another number. But do I need them to be able to do long division, you know, on repeat? Like, I think that we start it too early. There are some kids that just 
mentally aren't capable of understanding what we're doing at that age. So we end up teaching a skill instead of understanding. We want them to be able to repeat this over and over again. Uh, My whole philosophy as a math person was always teaching it as a problem solving method. It's like, this is a problem that I'm posing to you. And I want you to be able to problem solve through it instead of teaching so many skills. Computation comes into that. So I feel like there there has to be a balance of both. I never want a kid to solely rely on a calculator, but at the same time, if you understand how to do it, then take the calculator and do it quicker. Does that make sense? Like there has to be a balance to me as a math person. And I've taught from six through 12. So, so the reason why I just brought that up was kind of going back what Jason said about, we put emphasis on having to pass algebra one. Mm-hmm. And- some of your older teachers and, you know, know, may say, you know, like, no, they need that. They need to know this. They need to have that skill because, you know, this is something that they may need later on in life, but they don't know it right now at the age of 12 or 16 or wherever you take, you know, number one. So, you know, so I I hear what you're saying. um, And and, uh, Kelly is part as far as needing computation as well as knowing skills, but, you know, if, once you know the skill, then, you know, let's go ahead and use a calculator to get through it a lot quicker. Um, but, but what do you say to those people who are like, you know, you know what, let's go ahead and keep, because the biggest push, and as I'm, I'm curious, because like, we got two administrators here. I'm very curious. The administration in my district, what they've done is if there's a, if there's a drop, um, a drop in, let's say, reading comprehension, or if there's a drop in overall math skills, what they'll do is they'll take away some time from one area to add more time to the block in another or in, in those areas of weakness. So I don't know what y'all think about that idea, but a lot of times what ends up happening is, is that yeah, we're going to take away from like, okay, let's let's cut out, let's cut out the let's cut out the uh, you know, writing. You know, that's one big thing. So let's cut out science. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try to, we'll find, we'll incorporate science in the ELA block, you know, some kind of way, but really the kid doesn't get that full science experience. experience. What do y'all think about that? Yeah, that's definitely not what our district does. So, um, I mean, we, we definitely ask a lot of our teachers with regards to filling gaps, but it all starts with like an early evaluation. Like we, we start by asking a lot of questions. So when you said, I have that old school teacher that wants to do everything without a calculator, I ask questions as to why. And I ask, you know, what, what is your purpose in this? And maybe there's something I don't understand. But as an administrator, I feel like it's my job to get to the root reason as to why you're doing things the way you're doing them. So I ask a lot of questions. As far as like flip-flopping time, I think you just create a roller coaster of gaps. You have a gaps in writing for one grade level, and then you go to gaps in math for the next because you start stealing time. And there has to be a more effective way. We have instructional coaches. We're blessed with that. So in use of our instructional coaches, they're constantly evaluating data and we see gaps before they become an end of year problem. So I feel like for us, we don't, we don't roller coaster it. We try to fix the problem. And sometimes it's a teacher. And sometimes that means that teacher is no longer teaching math at an elementary campus. Maybe we have them teaching solely reading and ELA because that's their strength. And so in our district, we've done a lot of that where we take, you know, specializing as early as second grade as opposed to one homeroom teacher having to teach it all. So trying to use the strengths of the people. I, I agree with um, using the strength. And I think like the district that I'm in, what, we, what we've what we done is try to build 
um, a, a good ownership type culture. And with the ownership culture, that means um, a, a teacher owning or the, the teachers, because we do like uh, we have uh, PLCs. So that means that group of teachers, they're owning their their um, successes and their, their uh, failures or their hiccups, so to speak. So if there is an issue where um, reading scores are dropping, then that POC with those administrators, we get in a room and we figure out what it is that, that we need to do. It's not necessarily taking time from a different group or subject. It's more so like, like my um, superintendent, he likes to say, you put people around the problem. And, and what we say on our campus is the most, the, the smartest person in the room is the room, right? I know people have heard that before. So we put people around the problem and we, we, we develop a plan together. And so once those teachers develop that plan themselves, then they have ownership of that plan, right? The, the, the success or the failure of that plan. And the other thing is, if it does fail, it's, let's go back to the drawing board. It's not like beat yourself up about it. It's like, let's go back to the drawing board and, and figure out exactly what it is that we want to do. So that's how, that's how we address it. Felicia, you feel like that's how we address it? I agree, which is why I wasn't even going to add on to it. I, I do agree. Gotcha. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, move, move into another direction. So with, with a lot of the, um, the wokeness as we have right now with uh, our social um, issues in our country, generally speaking, do you believe, do y'all believe that there is a issue, a uh, systematic issue that's working against our black and brown students? Um, I think that this question answers itself. <laughs> like, so I work um, in the Dallas area at a school that was a second chance school. So for whatever reason, um, the kids did not fare well at like a regular public school. Um, they might have been incarcerated. They might have dropped out. They might have had a kid. Um, they might have just hated school. They might have been super duper smart and hated school, hated being there, right? Um, and so it wasn't just like troubled kids. It was kids that was like, miss, I already know all this. I don't feel like sitting in a class for eight hours. This school's four hours. That's why I'm here, right? I could work. I could do whatever. So, um we had a lot of different kids there, but uh, when I look at the schools that they come from, it was interesting to see that literally, literally, some of them didn't even have toilet paper in the bathroom. Like there were not feminine hygiene products in the bathroom. Uh, the nurse didn't have feminine hygiene products in the bathroom. Um, for those of you that are familiar with the Dallas area, then you might be familiar with Highland Park, which is the richest area in Dallas. I mean, like, like the all of our celebrities right of Dallas have a house in Highland Park right um and so for those of you who are familiar with it you'll know that Highland Park schools have everything that you need like you will never walk into a Highland Park school and not see um a bathroom that is not immaculate right or that doesn't have toilet paper or feminine hygiene products and so when we talk about schools that are negatively affected, it is almost always, always the ones that are in um, highly black and brown uh, populated communities. So is it systemic? Absolutely. Is it done purposely? Absolutely. And we can't even deny it. So when, I mean, we just have to take, and, 
every single one of those kids in my school, I think the entire time that I was there, um, and we got new kids every Tuesday, mind you. So in a, in a regular school year, I could teach literally 700 kids, you know, when usually at a, at a normal, or I don't want to say normal, but at a regular public school, right, you teach probably 200 kids max, you know what I mean, um, for the whole school year. And ours was not that way. And the entire time that I was there, I taught two white kids, two, the entire time, you know. So even if we just take that school alone in every school, um, because there were there are several throughout Dallas, San Antonio and Austin, I mean, you can see like who this who um, schools uh, that do not have the resources affect and they look just like me and you. So the reason why I asked that question was, you know, Frank and I, we, we've had conversation about race several times on this, on this show. And, um, and I, I've, I've made it known that, you know, a lot of our issues I do not believe is racial. Um, I, I, I do believe, um, what, one thing that I, I would like to say to all of y'all is that me personally, I feel like when we talk about black, we got to stop equating black with broke. Like, just because you're black doesn't mean you're automatically disadvantaged. Just because you're black doesn't mean that you're poor. Like where Frank and I grew up, we grew up middle class. Okay, now there, there's a there's a wide range of middle class there, but you know, just because we're black doesn't mean you can all, all of a sudden immediately think that okay, he was black, he came from a single parent home, you know, which neither one of he and I did. Um, but also too, on the flip side of that, you know, we can't just equate to that, you know, because you're white that it, it's you know highly privileged. But my question is, is it is it a racial thing or is it a social economic thing? Um, because you know, you can go, Jason can speak on this. Uh, he, he lives there, but, you know, um, they're in Terre Haute. You know, it's predominantly white, but it's high, high poverty. Um, and so you probably would, could see some buildings that are not, do not have the, the resources that, say, another school, you know, down south, you know, has. And so I'm saying, you know, would, would you say that this is, you know, are you still feeling that, or how, how can you, I guess, show me that it's a racial thing rather than right. economic. So I think that in order for us to acknowledge that it is a racial thing, we have to understand that redlining affected black communities directly. That when schools, and we know that schools are funded through property taxes, we know that the government said, hey, if we don't give black people housing, if we make sure that we put them in the poorest communities, then that means what for their education? If it is funded through through um, property taxes. And we're saying, well, we'll put them in projects. We will make it to where they can't get um, loans for housing. We will make sure that whatever area that they are in, right, that is predominantly black, uh, will not receive X amount of resources. Then we've done it systemically. We've done that on purpose. Clear until the 80s and even today, when we look up the statistics, black people are still being denied home loans with the exact same background, credit scores, down payment and everything as white people. It is still systemically happening. So while we can say we don't want it to be racial, right? Or we, and I don't think anyone can equate. You have, you have how many, three, four, five black folks on this call right now? And we're probably all middle class and doing very well. <laughs> like, so I don't think anyone here is thinking that black equals broke. I'm, but I think I'm, I'm, that, I'm broke. Um, I'm poor. We are the ones in this country that have been systemically um, affected because laws have been in place to make sure that we don't rise above. And that is still happening today. So when we look at these schools 
every single poor black and brown community in America is a result of redlining, without a doubt. Every single one of them zoned is due to redlining. And redlining was purposely so that black and brown children could not be educated the same and not receive those same resources. Hey, Felicia, can I add to that too? There's, there's a, even a little bit more to that. Uh, there, you know, back in the, uh, I would say probably the 1950s, 1960s, there was a theory, and I learned this through urban geography, called suburbanization. And when, when, a, when a city for, first formed, you had your downtown areas, and you noticed around the downtown areas were, were usually your, your bigger homes. And those were your rich people that live closest to downtown. Well, as the 50s and the 60s and, and, you know, and it's even occurred today, most of the rich in the cities moved out to the suburbs. So fast forward today, where do you see most of the Which is called white money? flight, which is important to note that that's called yes. white flight. Yes. Um, and, and see, and, and what that is, is when we say, is it socioeconomic or is it systemic racism? The, it's two of the same coin. It's to the same coin. So you even look at today and you look at, you know, the charter school issues and you look at everything and school funding. It's all geared towards the suburbs. It's all geared towards the suburbs. So, I mean, yeah, so I agree with you 100 um, percent. The only the only thing I may add to that is it's not only the inner cities that struggle, but also your poor rural communities also struggle as well because they have not they had they don't have the, the funds. Um, a lot of rural areas uh, closed down as a result, but I would agree it's the inner cities and it's the rural areas that are are basically being hurt um, in order to to help the suburbs out. You go around Indianapolis to any one of these suburbs, they all have new schools. They all have new schools, um, but yet we've got even in Terre Haute, our high schools are are you know we have mold problems, uh, you know you know, leaky pipes, roof problems, you know, it, it's, you know, and, and it's, it, it, it is you, it, it's, it's definitely visible. It's visible. So. I think the, the difference in the two, sorry, Brian, I think the difference in the two is that rural areas, um, the population, while it does seem to be more white, right. in rural areas, not always understand, mm -hmm. not always. And that's important when we have these conversations, because when we speak, we're speaking in generals. We're not speaking in absolutes, right? So when we say rural areas, the majority of the time, our brains go to white for a specific reason. When we think of inner cities, our brain goes to black and brown for a yes. specific reason. And the difference in these two is the fact that inner cities, though rural areas, because of the population and not having as many people, funding is different there, right? Mm -hmm. But also, they were not systemically... Um, affected like inner cities, like these other places that have been affected by white flight and things like that. So, and, and so, yes, but uh, agreeing with what you were saying, but one is systemically targeted and the other one, unfortunately, is a result of underfunding and population and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. And people always, like, the poor are part of the marginalized, no matter what race they are. Mm -hmm. Like, poor is part of marginalization. And so if you don't have the resources to get a lawyer when bad things happen in your neighborhood, when people are doing illegal things to you, when corporations are coming down, then, yeah, you are always going to be negatively affected. And that doesn't have to do with race. That is socioeconomical. And I think the other piece that, that we kind of went toward the, 
like our communities and how they're being built. But I think the other piece, when because your original question was, do we believe there's a systemic issue work against our black and brown students, right? I think the other issue that we have to think about is is within the curriculum. Like when we talk about our social studies curriculum, when we talk about um, what it is that we are are teaching our kids, our curriculum is being written by older white people, right? And so a lot of times in our in our readings, when, when we pick our literature, we pick old white men that wrote stories from way back when. And those are the those are who we consider our academia. Those are the ones that that we look for as classical literature. Like that's that's what we look for. And it doesn't show showcase a lot of our prominent black, brown um, writers. Right. And, and the same thing is in within history. Then they'll start using words like instead of using the word slave, they'll use things like um, I can't remember what the word was. was Indentured servant. Indentured servant. Right. Or migrant worker. um, And so when you when you have those things being built into the system, it's it kind of subconsciously teaches certain groups that you are uh, you are lesser than. If that, uh, for lack of a better word, and then the other thing that I think about too is, is that when we have, um, what is it? When we have like the opportunities to give our students um, uh, uh, literature, or or it's it's like it's still told from a white lens. Like when you talk when you talk about certain pieces of literature, it's still told from how white people were affected by this decision. And so we don't necessarily go for literature or, or a scope that was written, written from a black perspective or, or a brown perspective because we are scared of, I guess, the backlash or, or whatever it is that's going to, going to be told. It's always one-sided is what well, I'm trying yeah, to say. It's, it's the comfort level that everyone has become used to. We're okay with making black students uncomfortable, but the second we start to make a white student uncomfortable, there's going to be a parent involved. That's always the assumption. I mean, as a math instructional coach, as a math teacher, even our math problems were geared verbiage-wise towards experiences that white students would have gone through versus black students, and especially our inner city students. I mean, we're talking about silos and things like that, and they're like, oh, what? Like, what are you even? And it just didn't relate. Like, there's so many things that would not relate to our students that I would like, okay, you know, let's. that's why I went through things at a problem-solving level, because a lot of my black students could way out problem-solve any of my white kids, because my white kids had never faced problems. And so it was training their mind to understand culturally you face a lot of issues you naturally have this ability let's harness it in a math realm and that was hard for some of them to understand but I tell you like on my Facebook page right now you can scroll through and see former students that have told me you know no one ever told me I was good at anything until I had you but that's because I was harnessing abilities like we talked about before that no one had ever set on fire and so you have to like that that goes less to race maybe and more to culture. And I feel like those are two different things. Again, when you talk about how my teachers culturally were raised versus how they're trying to teach our students and not allowing them to identify with their culture. I mean, just going to culture, I got called out the other day by a white parent and told I was racist because I have Black Lives Matter stuff on my page and that I must hate all white people. And I stopped her child who had a Trump shirt on because she was out of dress code, not because of the Trump shirt. She had on tights, not allowed to wear tights. 
And so I had district personnel that actually stood up for me and said, um, I'm pretty sure even if the child had a Black Lives Matter shirt on, if they were wearing tights, they were out of dress code. Like Ms. Palmer don't care. But it's those kind of things like culture, race, like it all comes into play. Yes, socioeconomically disadvantaged, like all of that comes into play. There's always disadvantages. But yes, you can't ignore the fact that race is part of it. You can't ignore the fact that, like you were saying, Terry, the education system has been created by the white man, written by the white man, taught by the white man. And we're okay with making the black man uncomfortable, but we're not okay with making the white man uncomfortable. So and then even even okay, even okay to a certain point in in punishing that that behavior too because a lot of times what happens is like we we're talking about our uh, when we're talking about our policies and, and things that are put in in place and then you have terms like the prison uh, the school to prison pipeline those those terms didn't just develop out of thin air those those terms developed because students black boys mainly were disproportionately sent to our alternative schools. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, they're sent on um, discretionary things. And what I mean by discretionary is like, it's left up to uh, the administrator that, that handles that, that whatever that case is, right? And so we have mandatory things like drugs, weapons, those types of things, definitely. But if you have something like where um, it was a, an interaction with a teacher, maybe the student cussed the teacher out or, or, or something along those lines, right? where it's discretionary. I can do, I have a variety of things that I can do uh, as far as discipline goes. And in those situations where there it's left up to administration, a lot of times what happens is you see that black and brown, I don't want to leave my, uh, um, my brown students out as well. Black and brown students disproportionately are, are hammered when it comes time to, to hand down discipline. So when we talk about systemic issues, there are some, but I mean, we, and we have to, we can't just say that, uh, that it's not necessarily race. It may be this or that. No, it's when you look at the, at the numbers, race is a factor. And that, and the more that we say it's something different, it's easier for people to turn a blind eye to it. So this is, this is what, this is what I would have to respectfully push back on a little bit with, with this. So, Clearly, I'm a black man. I'm raising three black boys and a black daughter. And so I'm very aware uh, that there is a racial component to education, to, to the housing situation. I, I clearly see that. However, what I, what I, where, my, where my thinking goes is that, and I made, I made this mention to, to, uh, in another show, that the largest explosion of educational excellence for black people was during the reconstruction era. Mm. So from 1865 to the, to uh, the beginning of the 20th century, you had more black people learning how to read uh, literacy jumped up, learning how to count learning because those things were not allotted to them. They didn't have a bunch of resources to be able to get there. It was a drive. It was a want to, and they're clearly coming straight out of, slavery to in order to get to this position so my thought is and my feeling is on a lot of situations is that if there's a racial issue then i think that we collectively as as a 13 percent of this country we could figure it out with the money the resources that we've been given up to this point in this country though though it may not be the same as what white people get or asians or whatever but with the little that we do have i feel that we can do a lot better than what we are because if I'm not, if I'm reading the statistics correctly, 
that black boys are reading are, are proficient in reading at like 20 25%. And that's actually identically what it is in my school district. So then when you look at like <clears throat> then when you look at like that the the reasons behind that, my first go-to is not to say, oh well, it's it's systematically done this way. Because I mean, let's be completely honest, we have white children, Hispanic children, Asian children, I'm speaking of my district, that come from a single parent home, mom works two jobs, and they come to school and they get their work done. But we have some black children who when they come in there, they don't want to do it. They checked out. They don't, you know, and so like I I feel I feel complex or I feel, you know, a, a certain a certain way to say that, you know what, this is why we can't get advanced because white culture has done this, white culture has done that, white culture has done this. Yes, they done did a lot of stuff and there's been a lot of stuff that they put us, pushed us back on, on uh, when it comes for us to process, uh, to progress. But there has to be some type of ownership within our community in order for us to be able to get over these. It's one thing if we don't know the, the systematic uh, issues that's going on, but it's a different thing when we know there's a systematic issue and we're not actually progressing against it. Okay, sense? but I think I feel like you're coming at this real strong and self-admittedly coming from a middle class background, right? Whereas a lot of the kids that you're saying would know this or know this is potentially systematic, they don't know that. Like no, you're, no, 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 but, 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 okay, okay, you're blanketing me, a whole lot of assumptions right now from a perspective me, of someone that isn't in that same mindset that didn't have that. Let me, same. Let, let me let me roll back. Let me roll back a little bit then. Okay, so. Though, yes, I came from a middle-class background, yes. But what that does not, that does not disqualify me on being able to understand, especially with the, kid, the kids that I work with, for the amount of time that I worked with them, as closely as I worked with them, and the parents in the, in the community that I worked in, I, can, I have conversations with parents. I have conversations with I'm these I'm not kids. disqualifying I, you. I'm disqualifying your ability to blanket your assumption that they understand what's happening to them right now, that they, that the parents even of the kids that you're working with understand that this is or isn't systemic. Like your understanding is much deeper than the understanding of those parents and those kids. Why, so, why do we assume, why do we assume that? Why do we assume that my understanding is, is deeper than because I'm middle-class, I'm more intellectually understanding of what's going on. Um, I, I think that the, the reason why is because even as a black woman with a master's, okay, it wasn't until I started reading books by Ta-Nehisi Coates and Ibram X. Kendi and, you know, all of these incredible, also black female authors as well, but it wasn't until I started reading that I realized, now I know what racism is. I've experienced it my entire life as a black woman in the South. Anecdotal racism, I've experienced it my whole life. Right. I could not um, put into words what systemic racism looks like and how the system played a role in its um, in segregating or discriminatory practices. And I was an educated black woman and I am an educated black woman. It's not you have the time to sit down. And I will say this. Um, I had a professor in college. Middle class and upper class uh, people read books because they have time. When you are poor, you are constantly working. You are doing things you don't have time. 
And so, and not, not to say, by the way, because I see your frustration, not to say that because you're poor, you don't get to read books. No, I'm saying that your time is consumed with other things. When you are worried about how you're going to get food on the table, books are going to be the first thing or the last thing on your mind, the first thing to go. Right. But I know, and I learned later as again, an educated black woman with letters behind my name, that children with 200 plus books in their homes are the ones that are way more likely to go to college. Ask your kids how, how, if they know that go to school tomorrow and ask your kids if they know that. Right. Um, do you guys know that if you don't have X amount of books in your home? No, they won't know those things. Do you know, like, and so when we say this, I think that she is absolutely correct. You're coming from a place where, and this is what I hate too, when people say, I understand because I talk to people. Understanding and trying to empathize is different from living that life, right? Like, that's a completely different thing. And so when you say that you get it, and, and I think that far too often, we just want to say Black people lazy. Black people lazy, that's why we, don't, that's why we can't come up. That I don't understand because I got a whole bunch of black friends that are at Harvard, Yale, the most prestigious universities right now. So I'm confused as to what black people they're talking about, right? Like, because if we just want to do anecdotal things, then, then that's unfair to the overarching um, numbers of how black people are coming up right now and how we are being successful. So I, think, I don't know. I, I struggle think, with I that. Think you're, I think you're missing my point, though, because... Because because the the, the low the low the low bearing fruit right now is to say that okay you're working against or you're speaking against black people and not understanding their struggle. What I'm saying is this right here. Back again, what I said. We have it's a it's a quite diverse uh, um, um, school district, but you have black, you have Hispanic, you have we have a low low amount of uh, um, um, Asian. And somehow only but, the black you know, kids don't want to learn. No, no, that's not what I said. I didn't I did not say only the black kids. But what I'm saying is, is that when you look at when you look at scores, when you look at data, okay, when you have when you have kids coming from the same the same situations, okay, why is it that our black kids are still scoring lower? You see what I'm saying? So like there at some point, yes, we, we have to acknowledge the fact that there's a systematic issue. Yes, we have to acknowledge that, but we also have to acknowledge the fact that you know what? We need to take some, take that self pride, as I said, back as where, where where things were during the Reconstruction period. Okay, that desire, that hunger, that want to, because they just came out of slavery. What's our excuse? You see what I'm saying? So you do realize like, right we, after they like, came can, out of right? say what? Right after they came out of slavery, right? So we're looking at this point in time when you, it's always natural instinct, right, to want something that you can't have, right? So we we worked very diligently to become educated. And then in that very moment when we started becoming educated, what did they do to us? What did they do when we started becoming that's educated? That's, that's not what we're talking about. You, you're, going, you're going too far ahead of me. No, no, no. I'm saying, I'm just saying. I'm exactly where you are. No, you're talking about I'm what exactly they did to us after. I'm, like, that's not, that's not, we're not talking about what they did to us after. No, it is because it's affecting us today. Oh, when black people, yeah, when black people became successful and, be, and got businesses and banks and owned our own communities, they continue to burn that shit to the ground every time. So the question is, you, we have not, and again, when I started, I said, you cannot be what you cannot see, right? So when people, right, especially people that were brought up in the hood, right? Because I don't have no problem calling it the hood. It is what it is. The government created it. It is what it is. So when people move out the hood, right, when they go get educated, do they move back to the hood? No. Just a yes or no question. Okay. No, no. So now 
you have educated people that every time we come up, we leave where we came from, right? So if I'm a kid and all I see are people around me doing X, Y, and Z, what is it that I'm more than likely going to do? Because, and we can't say you, you, you have a choice. Duh, you always have a choice. But I also had a choice to go to college because my mama went to college, right? That was ingrained in me. So just like these kids who are looking at their surroundings, right? It's the same thing. You're saying that this, this, I'm getting too far ahead of you, but you cannot be what you cannot see. So all of these kids, or and I'm not going to say you cannot be, I'm saying it's unlikely that you will be what you have not seen, right? So if, and not just that, but let me just take this, right? I read an article the other day, and it said that a black student that graduates from college with a 4.0, right, will still not land a job that pays as much statistically as a white kid that graduated with a 3.4 or lower because of their network system. So when we are talking about systemic racism, if I already know, right, that the system beats me down like this, how much am I going to actually want to work? Like, and I'm not saying that this gives our kids a pass. I'm not saying this gives our kids a pass to not want to learn. You're talking against yourself because you just said for me to go tomorrow and ask my kids if they are aware of systematic racism, but then you're talking about that these kids only feel like they're being beaten down, why would they want to try? Well, which one is? Are they aware of their of the systematic issues, or are they not? That aware? doesn't speak against it. It goes with it. I think sometimes when you see that nothing around you is playing out in your favor, you're they. And I said it. I said it earlier too. Anecdotal is different. When I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, I know that people have been racist towards me. I can my kids tomorrow if I go and say, yo, is this flag racist? And I hold up the Confederate flag, they'll all say yes. And when I say why, they'll go, I don't know, just because racist people be flying it. But the difference is being able to understand the systemic racism behind that flag. It's racist because of the people flying it. No, it's racist because of what it stands for. The people who wanted to fly that flag, the history behind that flag. That is what we are lacking. And so I feel like when you say these things, you have to come at it with an understanding of there is a lot of information that we are missing, like even us as educated people. And when I say educated, I mean formally educated because there's a whole bunch of people out there that ain't never set foot in a college that are very, very educated. So I also need to like lay that down. When I say educated, I mean formally because that's what society loves to acknowledge. The other thing that I think about and in, in just kind of bringing it back is um, when we talk about students, right? And we talk about how um, students learn, okay? Um, in our culture, our culture is consumed about being fly, right? We consumed about things looking good, the aesthetics and that kind of thing, or at least I know I was, right? And and, st- and things being cool. And so I think in a lot of cases, uh, what happens for our young kids when they come in, they don't see reading as cool. And it's not that that is not, is that the people that they associate with reading, the people that uh, that that are are seen, I guess, as like the the smart kids and that kind of thing. That's not that's not cool to them. And part of the reasoning behind that is because they don't see themselves in what they're reading. They don't see themselves in the literature. They don't see themselves in like you don't learn about the cool people that are super smart. Like it's it's funny how black people have invented so many things and have have started so many things within this country and they don't know about it. Like you don't know how much genius is is inside you. And I think that's part of 
the systemic piece that is kind of keeping kids from, when you talk about the 25% and you're talking about our, our black students are reading at 25%, well, think about some of the books that they get started in reading. Right. Like some of the books that they get, like I still remember the little book about the mouse or whatever. When I started in kindergarten, reading them little one liners, if that's the books that you that you get introduced to and then you hit you, you get on your phone and you can scroll down and see TikTok videos that's going to get your attention better then what you're going to be more interested in. I'm going to be more interested in these TikTok videos. Right. And so it's it's one of those things where um, I it's I don't think it's a um, it's an excuse for. Uh, to say, hey, we need more literature that looks like us. I don't think that's an excuse. I think that is just good practice. When you say you want to increase reading, good practice would be, well, hell, let's go out and get some books that these kids like reading, right? Like that's that just that just makes sense to me. So I, I guess that's the I think that's the piece that that sticks out to me when we talk about reading and reading scores and that kind of thing. It's like. You have to make it relevant. And that's what anything you got to make it relevant in order for for these kids to to want to do it. And then to your other point about um, about other races, like you talk about Asians and you talk about um, about our, our Hispanic kids. I think with them, education is seen differently. Like a lot of times when our Hispanic kids, they come over, they are um, they are like the first in their family. And so they are so. Like their their parents look at education so so different. Same with our Asian families, right? They don't see it as an oppression. They don't see it as as anything to kind of hold them back or anything like that. So when they get it, they they're just trying to. A lot of times they're trying to learn the language. And then our Asian students are they're like the model citizens. Like they that's that's in their culture. That's in their DNA. Well. A lot of things, I think a lot of things that are within our DNA that make us make us who we are is seen as as negatives. Right. Like when you think about just like this conversation, I've seen the passion in in you and and, and in Felicia. And if you see that same passion in the classroom, people look at it like, oh, they they too loud. Right. They are are they making up too much noise over there. Like that's just being real. And and so a lot of times in in our younger kids, what that is seen as is like ADHD and those types of things. And then that leads to special education and that leads to the student getting a stigma and feeling like their natural behaviors that that what they what they see at the house when people are getting loud and and and, and people are having fun and that kind of thing. What they see what they see at home isn't good at school like that's bad. And so I think that there's a lot of different factors that that play into our kids essentially not liking school. Now, when you have a middle class family, that middle class family teaches like my son, we we my kids, we teach them how to do school. Right. Like you learn that you when you in that classroom, you sit down, you respect that teacher, you don't move. You this this is what we learn. A lot of our kids aren't. Are, are, are coming in and haven't learned how to do school. And then too, think about it like this, when it, when it gets this far, a lot of our kids are coming in with parents who had bad experiences in school, right? So those, those, those parents who didn't like school are raising kids who don't like school. And so how do you bridge that? How do you, first of all, you have to earn that trust, right? You got to fix that trust that was broken because that person 
lost that trust when they were in school. So you have to do that by showing them that you're going to do things differently, right? And so I think that's where the curriculum and 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 finding things that that gain our kids' attention and that are relevant to our kids helps to build that trust. That's my thing. So Brian, can I add on to that really quick? Yeah, go ahead. Just really quick. So I really have to speak to that because last year, so this is my fourth year teaching. Um, and last year, my so I at the beginning of the school year, I saw this um, article that said 10 books by black and brown authors that um, to replace To Kill a Mockingbird with, basically, right? Because, uh, and Riley said this earlier, we have classics, right? But they're only classics because black people weren't allowed to read and write and publish back then, right? So, like, our classics, we're not even included in the classics because of certain systemic issues of racism, right? Like, our, our art and our books of, of work are not even allowed to be on the, on the shelf as classics. Anyway, last year, I said, you know what, let's, re- let's use one of these books to replace it. So my school, we ordered The Hate You Give, right? Um, and with The Hate You Give, so my students are reading it. Brian, the very first page, shit you not, the very first page, my students were like, yo, what, miss, this is it, like, this is that work, right? The very first page. And I had never, four years, three years last year, right, of teaching, I'd never seen students excited to read every single time. And I try to bring in relevant things, right? Like, duh, I try to bring in black and brown authors all the time. But the way the hate you give hit was a little bit different. And so my students, when we're bringing in relevant material, which is far too often not the case, I see it every single day. I'm an educator, like, you see it, you know, like, what are the kids reading? You know what I'm saying? So they don't identify with these characters. Um, in these books and then they have lost all like desire you know what I'm saying to to finish reading and so when we dig into systemic it's not systemic cannot be looked at from a surface level you know what I'm saying we can't just say well our black kids are doing this we have to go deep and say but why though but why like because it doesn't make sense because if we think that then we have to if we if we think right that well, our black kids just aren't doing it, then the only other um, conclusion that we can draw is that they are inferior and that they don't learn as well, right? Or that they are all just overarchingly lazy as the generalization that they are lazy because, well, the white kids are doing it, the Asian kids are doing it, the Latino kids are doing it, right? So if it's just this population, then surface we go, well, probably they're lazy. Well, probably they just, maybe they, maybe their mama and daddy, they don't, you know, they don't care, right? And firsthand I can tell you that that's just not true like but last year when we were reading the hate you give and we walked in and I said all right y'all listen I need y'all to get out y'all bell ring and I was like miss when are we gonna start reading do you know I ain't never had a, a student in three years ask me that Brian in three years boo ain't nobody ain't no student ever said when are we gonna start reading they were like miss we still reading this that's what we get right but when you read something that's relevant then they go oh bet bet Let's do it. I, I, right? and I, actually, I absolutely agree with you on that because I've seen that myself. I've seen even like right. with, um, you know, I, uh, I'm thinking of uh, um, Watson's Go to Birmingham. You know, that, that was a book that, you know, I got to teach history with my kids on that one. Then we, then we did, uh, matter of fact, you know, I was, my own kids were ever sitting there reading Bud Not Buddy. And so like, 
I get what you're saying, because that definitely will will change up the, the desire of wanting to do that. So I agree with you on with, uh, with both you and Terry on that. So here's my here's my next question. Do y'all think and this 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 is pretty radical, radical, radical thought here. But if it was legally possible, do you think that the black community would benefit from a restart by having an Afrocentric school? In other words, to kind of repair and, and, and hit reset on being able to to start there, and then not on not only on having an Afrocentric school, because because let's be honest, we're still a minority. It's only thirteen percent of it. We can't go to a whole district in some places and say we need to push more black, you know, black stories. And you know, when you only got five black kids in your whole district, so um, you know. So my question is, you think that that would be beneficial? And then two. Does the race of the the race the racial makeup of the teachers and of the administration does that make a difference? Can I can I answer? Open mic. So one, um, when Brown versus the Board of Education happened, right? It happened because they said when things were separate but equal, black schools were thriving. They were killing it. Do you know why they, they said we needed to desegregate? Do you know why? Why we needed to segregate? Because they yeah, said the, that they, they, wanted to make, they wanted to say that we needed to have equal opportunities as what the white schools said. Right. But we were already equal. We had resources. We had textbooks. We had teachers that looked like us. The reason why is because they said black kids feel inferior and are sad. It hurts us that we cannot learn alongside black people. If you go read the Brown versus the Board of Education, that is what they said, that we are sad that we don't get to, it wasn't because we were struggling because we weren't doing well, no. It was simply because they said we, we, we were sad. Like we just, we need to learn alongside white people, right? Go read the case because this is important for right now because we understand, if we understand that, then we get, when black teachers and administrators, they were also part of our community. We went to church with them. We saw them at their grocery store. We saw them at the skating rinks, right? Our families were very intertwined. Um, so at that time, black schools were thriving. Now, I believe that it is very important to have a staff that, that mirrors your, um, your school demographics. But what I believe is also equally important is to have racially competent teachers. Does that make sense? Like you can't you can't say, well, we um we pride ourselves in I, I, like I don't know, but when we look at schools that are diverse and have a diverse population, it is important for students to be able to see themselves in teachers as well. That goes for Asians, that goes for the Latino population, um, you know, all of that. But at the same time we have to make sure that along with that, we are having culturally competent teachers in the classroom, period. Terry, what you think, man? Um, I've been sitting there thinking. I, I think that it, it, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of different things that will have to go into that, especially based on the model that we have now. And so what I think about when, when, I, when, you, when you first mentioned it, I think about funding. Like, how is it going to be funded? So it would have to be um, equal in some way. Not like it, 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 it just, I won't say equal, but not underfunded. Put it like that. Like, I, I wouldn't need equal, 
but I wouldn't want underfunded. The other thing I think about is when I think about I, I think about I think about communities, right? And um, one of the things that Felicia said earlier was that when when we um, when we make it, so to speak, we move out of the communities that we were in, right? And when you think about black communities, there aren't many thriving just black communities. Like when you when you sit down and you think about it, there's not a like she parts she she said Holland Park, right? Or or and and we could we could list we could list them. But for us, like the hood is like my, my cousin has a, a clothing line and and it's and it's it, he just kind of started, but it's booming right now and it's called it's called public housing. And the reason that it resonates with people so much is because we all were either in it or we were like that generation that just got out of it. It's like for black people, for black people, we have a connection to public housing some way. Like my mom, we, were, we when I was growing up, my mom, we weren't in public housing. Like my mom, I would say she was about middle class. We were about middle class, but my cousins, my aunts, my grandmother. So whenever I wanted to go kick it, guess where I was, right? So we were all there. So I, I when I wear it, and I wear it with pride, not saying that I, I lived in public housing. I wear it with pride because I grew up in public housing. Like I grew up there. That's where I got my values. That's where I got my drive. That's where I learned how to make something out of nothing. That that in that place, right? And so when I think about the Afrocentric school, and I, I I don't just think about, oh, we need a school with with that that teaches toward our kids. I think more so like if you if you allow us to build businesses and to um and those businesses are thriving and the black dollar is recycling within that neighborhood, then you wouldn't have to build that type of school. It will build its damn self. Like it will build itself. You would have those people there. People would want to come work there. And those teachers would, would be for those kids just cause that's our, that's in our nature. Like one of the things like black people, we are the most forgiving people. When you think about all the stuff that has happened, all the things that we, if Trump came out yesterday, in spite of everything that he said, if he came out and was like, listen, I, I was tripping, right? I, 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 I was tripping. This is what we going to do. This is how we going to help these people right now. A lot of us would still be like Trump still on that BS, but you will have a large portion of people that be like, Hey, you know, Let's just go pray for him. Let's go put hands on him and we're going to get him where he need to be. Right. Because that's in our nature. That's that we are that type of loving people. Right. So I think that <laughs> I think that if we I'm, I wouldn't be more so focused on building that Afrocentric school. I'd be I would be more focused on building that Afrocentric community, because if you build that community, then that school going to come. And that that's my thoughts on it. Jason Kelly, y'all. Yeah, I have something. So for me, um, I recently, very recently, have felt called to be less in the diverse school and more in the all-white school and making an impact there. Because I feel like they need to see people that look like me that still love brown people, that have a biracial daughter. And somebody mentioned, I don't even know who mentioned, you know, only having five black kids at the school and not bringing in that literature there. No, it effing needs to be there. 
because we don't make a difference in the diverse schools because people that go to diverse schools, they go for two reasons. They either want to make a difference there or that's where they end up. I mean, like, let's be honest. If you can't get a job as a teacher, there's always an opportunity at the diverse campus. And it's always looked at as like a negative. Like for my high school, we're the stepchild of the big high school in town. We'll always be that because we're smaller. We have less athletes, whatever. Okay. We're diverse. The other school is also diverse. I feel a calling to leave the diversity and go to the Marion, Texas and the Viter, Texas, where people are getting still drugged to this day and make an impact on those children and let them know that it's not okay, the hate that they give in their houses, the Trump shirts that they're wearing, that there is an opportunity to love and respect and that there are authors out there that don't look like them. And I feel I, I almost am hesitant because I have a biracial daughter taking her to that environment. But wherever I work, I want my kid to be because I want people to understand that, like, I believe in where I am. Like, I may live in College Station. I don't work in College Station. My kid doesn't go to College Station. Like, there's a reason for that. And so I feel like I need to move out of this population because we have people here that want to make a difference, but the difference won't be made in those diverse communities. We have to, we have to make the difference everywhere. Oh, my sister-in-law, I have to uh, say you are so right. So my sister-in-law, she's white. Um, she just recently uh, started teaching in an area North of here. Uh, it, well, sorry. It's still in the Dallas area. <laughs> I'm saying North, like not Northeast or anything, but like North. Yeah. So, um, and it's predominantly white area, uh, predominantly heavy Asian. It's a very nice area, right? And so she was telling me that they have like book clubs. And I was like, yo, like, let me see your book list. Cause I just knew it was about to be on some BS. Like I already knew it wasn't going to be diverse. I was like, let me just see it, you know? So yo, she showed me this book list and like 10, like so, probably like eight of the 10 books were by authors of color and women, right? both like simultaneously not just like I was shook y'all because I was like yo what they over here teaching these white kids like we over here we got the hate you give we got dear Martin we got just um Tiffany uh, full of Tiffany Jackson if you're familiar with her work like yo I was like oh my gosh like y'all are really trying to this is, this is just a testament to the English department all the time because that's how we do uh, you know, a shout out to all English departments everywhere because we try to like, we tend to be the wokest department. I don't care what anybody says because we read all the time. But um, it was beautiful to be able to see the work that they're doing over there where I think all of the teachers, not all of the teachers, but in the English department are also white. The students are predominantly white. And they're like, yo, you got to get these different perspectives up in here. And I thought that was very beautiful. So shout out so to So Jason, Jason. What, what, what do you, how do you think that would roll over in Terre Haute and the areas that you're in right now? If, um, if you were to push in the idea of more black literature in the school. Well, right now where I teach in Brazil, we probably wouldn't, pro, I don't know. Um, I think that, I think over there it would be kind of an unknown. Uh, and I'll, there's just, there's just, there's no knowledge. There's just no knowledge. I, I honestly believe that some of our kids don't even under, don't even know that that type of literature even exists. It's a, it's at that level where they just think books are books and that's it. They don't know if it's, you know, if there's, you know, 
black written books by black authors, white authors. I think they just think books are books. And I don't think I, so I think they're at a very primitive level of all of this. I think in Terre Haute, it's a little different. I think Terre Haute, I think it would go over pretty well. Um, Kind of going back to what Terry was saying um, in terms of like, uh, you know, generating the, uh, the, the economy of the African-American neighborhoods. I think that is extremely important. Um, I think, I think, you know, support, especially during the COVID situation, we got to support local businesses, but we got to support African-American businesses. I'm talking about white people going in and supporting African-American owned businesses, um, going in and supporting um, businesses in the Latino communities, because that's, I think that's the big issue. I think there's a lot of money that white America spends in white-owned businesses, but they don't celebrate African-American businesses, African-American culture, Latino culture, uh, what have you, you know? So I think that's extremely important. There's gotta be money generated into these communities. And then I think the schools will take care of themselves. And to piggyback off you, Jason, I think that what happens, man, is, is, is part of that is because of what we're teaching, like in, in history. So when you when you think about your history and the books that you read and you think about what it is to be American, then you tend to think that America is white, like because we don't mm -hmm. celebrate uh, the diversity that is us. You know what I mean? So we don't realize that um, when a when you have um, a Hispanic person that is speaking Spanish and then you say something like you need to learn the language. Spanish is American. Like, get out of here. Like we we are a nation of immigrants. So if we are a nation of immigrants, then everything that is an immigrant is us. That's American. You feel me? And so I think that's part of the reason why we don't feel that that sense of community. That's part of the reason why we feel so segregated is because everybody hasn't embraced that America, a true American, is a variety of different people. America looks different. America is different. And the sooner that we embrace that, then the better off that will be just everybody. And that's one of the things that, that at my school that I'm trying to bring now is that sense of community. We did a video um, at the beginning of the year to, to highlight our new, um, how, highlight our new vision for the school, right? And so in that video, I told, I told all the teachers, I was like, look, I, I want you in the video. And when we say our slogan, like, and I don't want to say our slogan because we're, we're not trying to put, you know, the, the specifics out there. But mm -hmm. I told everybody, when we say our slogan, I want you to say it in your language. And so we had, um, what, Felicia, you better with the Punjabi, language. We had Punjabi, we had um, English, Spanish, we had French, we had German. Uh, I mean, the, the dialect, I can't remember what the name. Yes, yes. Igbo, I think she was. Igbo, yes, that's what I was going to Yoruba, one of those, Igbo or Yoruba. But um, I mean, we had all these different languages and people were just like so touched reading it. I mean, um, watching it because they were like, oh my gosh, like, and they could see themselves, you know, and that had never been done on our campus before. And the, and the best thing about that is that that's America. Like, that's what America is. And that's what we are trying to show and build. And the thing is that if you start that, if you start that early in, in kindergarten and, and showing these kids, this is what America is, then they feel included. Like, they feel like their culture is relevant. They feel like they can 
they can get in, get in their English class and speak Spanish to their Spanish friends because that's American. They feel like what they're wearing doesn't offend anybody because that's American. And so that that's the that's I think that's the direction that we need to take in order just to make everything better. Like I think right now what people try to do is they try to downplay the the race thing because they feel like it'll keep the peace. And it's not so much as downplaying it, it's just embrace it. Embrace all of those differences. Learn about them. That's one of the things that I've learned from Felicia. It's like you can't just say, "Oh, I'm I'm this type of person. I love everybody." Well, if you loved everybody, you would you would take an interest in their culture, or you would take an interest exactly. in the things that they are going through. If you have no interest in what they are going through, then how can they trust you when we say you love everybody? You feel me? That's mm-hmm. me. Brian, can I just say um, I don't? I, I'm not just going back to my comment earlier too. I don't think I should say whether or not I believe that we should do that. I but I do think it's important for me to say that history has shown that when black people are able to run back black communities and black businesses that we thrive immensely. Now I'm gonna leave it at that. I got you. And I, and, and and what Terry was saying was was uh was resonating with me earlier about like you know how you just had the community. You know, the community was at one point, you know, or I think I think um Alicia, you said like you know you'll see like you know the principals and the teachers in the, in the stores and you know it was it was truly a community thing, and I'm not sure about y'all's district, but like in our district, um, it's not that way. You know, you, majority of our teachers, majority of our administrators, they live outside of the city, outside of the, of the district, and and you know, and not only that, but their kids do not even attend um, you know the schools, and and it's like and that tells you that tells you a lot of not there's not a lot of buy-in you know, from, from a lot of our, you know, parents when it's like, okay, you don't even trust your own children to be at this school. How am I supposed to trust you leading it? So, so I, so that, so that's why I was saying, <laughs> so that's why I was saying like, you know, you know, I know it's a radical idea and I know, you know, because of, you know, laws, we can't, you know, do an Afrocentric school, but, you know, segueing into the idea of charter and private schools, you know, would that have been something that y'all would think, you know, y'all be on board with? Like, you know, yeah, I could see, a school where we, you know, we promote that, you know, and I, and I know, matter of fact, um, y'all, y'all, you know, I think Felicia, y'all, y'all from the Dallas area, um, you know, I have friends that live in Lancaster and, and Oak Cliff and, um, and, uh, and DeSoto. And I went, I was down there one year and I went to um, Tony Evans's church, uh, Oak Cliff, um, the little campus he got there. And, you know, and I just saw what he was doing there where like he, basically took, you know, a ran down area and redeveloped it, um, you know, for several different ministries. And, and it's like, that's, that right there is, is brilliant. You know what I'm saying? Then he has his own academy, his own school. So again, you know, and his focus is more spirituality, you know what I'm saying? And getting, giving the word, uh, giving the gospel to kids through education. But again, the idea is like, how can we in, inject or give some, like some, uh, some cultural steroids to our kids to uplift them, you know what I'm saying, to where they want to read more, like you said, you know, giving them these different uh, uh, books and uh, authors that, that are of color. And so, like, you know, I don't know, I, I feel like as I'm thinking of what ways can, uh, what can I do to help the issues that we have, that's the first thing that came to my mind, is, like, be in control of the curriculum, be in control of the direction of your school, but the only way you can do that is going private. Y'all, would y'all agree with that? Or do you think y'all can make those same changes inside of a public school setting? 
I think when you have superintendents and everyone who are superintendents, principals, um, because at my school, one of the things that I actually love, even as a public school, is that um, we have a lot of autonomy at my school. Like our principals, they're like, yo, your kids in there learning? Bet. You know what I mean? And like, however you can get that done. And it's it's a very beautiful thing because the district, the school that I came from before, you know, the, the second chance school, it was very strict. You have to do this this way. You have to read this way. Like, and that was a charter school. You know what I'm saying? Like that was a charter. And we, we as teachers had no, um, no autonomy. Like it was, it was crazy. So I think that it depends on your leadership period. Like no matter if it's public, private or charter, like you magnet, whatever, like you just have to make sure that your people are on board. Now I know, I know what you're saying too about like, but these are still what's in the books, right? But we go off the books and we also order books like through funding. We say, yo, just like last year I said, um, they were like, oh, all we got to do is do a petition for that. We did the petition. We got the books. We got the funding, whatever, you know. Um, so I just think you have to have people that share that vision, that are on board, regardless as to what the district is. Yeah. And in Texas, like we have districts of innovation. So like within districts of innovation, like if you have something that you become really passionate about that would be beneficial to your community, you make that decision as a district and your school board approves it. So like we are a district of innovation. And so there are certain things that we can do within that, that allow us some freedom that maybe you wouldn't typically have in a public school setting. But the reason for that is to help communities thrive. I mean, that was part of the, what they said it was for, you know, who they always have their own real reasons, but um, part of it is to allow us some freedom in what is taught, how it's taught, that kind of stuff. So we definitely gain some freedom with that. That's cool. So um, this is my last question, uh, unless somebody else want to you know, bring up anything else, but what are y'all's thoughts on special education in terms of our, specifically with our black boys? Is there a problem? I think we already spoke about this a little bit, but I think there is an over-identification of black males um, in the special ed department. And I feel like Okay, so my whole thinking goes back to the smallness of elementary schools and how, you know, like in our community, we're probably, I think we're around 26% African-American. So if you divide the African-American community between all of these elementary schools, which is what they do, because that's how the the lines are drawn. So we have African-American boys that, like Terry said before, don't necessarily always know how to do school. So those kids are being trained how to do school at the same time that they're supposed to be learning how to read at the same time they're supposed to be learning how to count all of these other things they're trying to do at one time. So they're coming in at a disadvantage in the eyes of a teacher, in the eyes of the way our education system is built. Okay. So they're, they're at a disadvantage coming in, but we also have elementaries that are built around getting the masses to a certain point. So we get the masses, but we're leaving out these little black boys because they're just trouble. They're loud. They talk a lot. I send that one, two, three little black boys that I have out of my 26 for the day. They go outside. So then we get to the intermediate level. And here we have two intermediates. So we have like 1500 kids in fifth and sixth grade on one campus. All of a sudden, that's a lot more little black boys that are loud, that are congregating, that maybe have, you know, been at the same disadvantage, been sent out of class or used to that. And now we're at the fifth and sixth grade campus. And so they're behind. 
Now they're getting identified as not having, you know, not being up to par. They have a learning disability, they're ADHD, whatever the case is. So it's like the elementaries for me are really the starting point of not teaching those kids the way they need to. And they come to us with gaps, like being a middle school teacher, I would work my butt off to fill those gaps, but those gaps weren't necessarily there because they don't have the ability to do it. Like, hello, growth mindset, everybody can do it. But the over-identification comes from the fact that they were allowed to get away with so much or they were learning how to do so much at one time. And we worry about the masses over the ability of all students. Like that has been part of my theory since I got into education. So, so my thought, you know, and special education is, is my thing. Um, part of my issue is, is that there's not a lot of education for our parents. Um, and not only that, not a lot of education, but there's a lot of apathy with our parents and understanding when there's opportunities to have, to be educated on what's going on. Because a child cannot be put in special education unless the parent okays it. And so um, I, what, what I see a lot of times is that parents are come in with this misconception of thinking that if I sign my kid up for special education, then this will help him. And some cases it does, but in other cases it will hinder them. I, I, I personally believe it will hinder them. It will, it will give the kid a sense of, and I think Terry said it earlier, it'll give a kid a sense of, I can't. I can't do this because I'm labeled this, or I can't do this because of this, because I, I go to this special class, or I have anger issues, or, you know, and, and so therefore that's already telling them that they can't do it. So so, so, my, so my personal feeling with special education is, is that, especially with the black boys, is that like right now, like I found this out um, a couple a couple of days ago, but you know, within my district, they there's a there's you know, it's disproportionate. You know, what I'm saying like we our district is about sixty percent black, um, you know, but you know, and it's like there's so much more that's in that special education special education system, and I would like to think that you know a lot of that is due to. Um, the cultural issues that we have with our between our parents and our and our teachers and our administration, uh, because you know, guess guess who they send them to? You know, when, when the black boy is cutting up, guess who they send them to? They send them to me. You know what I'm saying? And it's like the idea of me is thinking, okay, well, how about instead of like keep sending these kids to me, how about pay me a little something to do a training to teach everybody in the school building how to handle these situations? You know what I'm saying? And so like. Um, you know, and this, again, this is only my district, you know what I'm saying? They're doing the best that they can, but I'm just curious to hear from y'all of like, you know, especially with the fact we got two administrators here on how do y'all address the issues of fact of the increasing numbers of black boys being put in special education, like the referral process, like, you know, why are these teachers referring these kids? Is it purely academics or is it majority, you know, like, you know, cause I see like with boys, black boys is more behavior. And then with the black girls is more academics. So, I mean, is, is that pretty much consistent for y'all in y'all's districts or is that, you know, just me? Did you want to talk, Felicia, or? I did real quick. Um, Brian, I feel like everything you just said, one, I feel like I could karate chop you because you should have led with the fact that your district only has 6% black folks, okay? When you were talking about- 60, 60, 60. Oh, I thought you said six. I was like, I should karate chop you. Okay, 60. So you wait, 16 or 60, six zero? Six zero. 
Chicken zero. Okay. Oh, okay. Because I was about to karate chop you earlier. Okay. But um, I do think, uh, and Riley and I, we just had um, a meeting about pretty much everything that you just said almost. But what now has happened to you? And I, I just kind of want to speak to that. And then I'll let Riley speak to everything that you were about to say. But um, I feel like what you're experiencing right now is is that black tax, right? Is because you are black they think you look like these kids, you can identify with them, which is also a beautiful thing, right? Like we never get offended that we identify and that our kids love us and listen to us. Like that's a beautiful thing, but it's also taxing. And now they've made you the Negro whisperer, right? Like now you have to be the person, just like if you are on campus and you're one of the few that speak Spanish, right? You're one of the few um, people, whether you're Latino or not, just period, if you speak Spanish, you are now the Latino whisperer, right? You are now the knower of all things, just like they've made you the Negro whisperer. And so I think that we have to acknowledge if, first of all, who gets to identify what a good student looks like? When we're doing special ed, when we are going through those tests and we say, okay, can you sit still when you're learning? No, mm, okay. Can you, do you often get off track? Mm, okay, Ooh. like we're going through these things, but even me, right? Like I have learned that in conversation with other black folks, we hop around and we loud and we go from conversation to conversation. We go, oh, okay, going back to that. Anyway, what we said 30 minutes ago, we're going to got off track because we were talking about mama and him. Um, so you remember, right? And so this is what we do. But then we go and we take a test and somebody says, yeah, but if you can't do it the way we think you should do it, like you just probably aren't good at it. And who gets to determine that? Because literally we culturally this is important when you're asking right because those questions should be more like when you're in class um how much do you understand right how much of the curriculum do you understand or do you feel like you're falling behind because you don't understand or because it's boring do you feel like your teachers appreciate you and all of you and who you are because all of these things go into whether or not they finna sit there and like terry said earlier uh, scroll TikTok or do whatever it is because they're not interested. It's not that they have an attention deficit. They don't care. <laughs> like you haven't made this important for them. And so I just think that we have to look at the root of what special education is, how those questions are asked. I mean, and obviously, and I started in special ed too, just so you know, I started in sped. Um, and so I, I identified that as well. And I think you're right. It slows them down later on because they're like, and some of them know, right? They know to use it because they say, no, I got to, I need extra time. Boy, I know you, no, sir, you don't need extra time. You ain't done nothing in my class. What you mean? <laughs> like extra time is for you not understanding and then you need that extra time. But, and, and that's with anything, like, that's not just our students. Like if we know that we can, like, they going to give us a mile from that inch, right? We going to take it. Like, it's just who we are as people. Um, and so I think that we have to be very careful with that and what special education is. But anyway, sorry, Riley, go. No, nah, you, you, that was great. Um, when I think about our black boys, I, I, I think about, um, I think Kelly was, who said it earlier when um, she talked about our kids are dealing with more, like they're, they're dealing with more. And so when I think about black boys and when, and you said like, what are we doing to, um, I guess, to address it, so to speak. Um, I, when you, when you mass produce it, right. When you mass produce relationships, because that's really what it is. It's relationship building. You, you immediately are, we as black people, we immediately have a relationship with our black students. Right. And we think it's all because we black, but really it's more so because of trauma. Like we've all experienced 
similar trauma. That's what connects us. We've all experienced racism to an extent. We know how to make something out of nothing. Our parents, we, we've eaten the same food most of the time. You know, we, we, we wear the same clothes, listen to the same music. It's, it's those things. And um, uh, Felicia sent me a video earlier from um, the rapper. I can't think of his name, he out of California. But he says as black people, we sell trauma. Right, like when we talk, when we listen to our rappers and that sort of thing, they are selling trauma. They're selling trauma to our kids. And so when we talk about our, our black boys, the first thing that we need to do if we're going to uh, reach those black boys, we have to reach their trauma. We have to fix their trauma. Because when you think about those successful kids, right, the, the ones who make it, me, you know what I'm saying, you, uh, all these black men that's on this panel, like our trauma was limited. Either we had a parent who was there, a grandmother who was there, a mentor who was there who, who pulled us up out of our trauma. Now, the thing about trauma is that we've all experienced it at some level. So trauma can be mass produced. So when you're talking to your teachers about um, when they're saying that, I just, don't, I just don't understand this kid in my class. Like, he just won't listen to me, right? How, how am I going to reach them? You have to build that trust. And you build that trust by making a connection. Now, the thing that I think about with, with, with trust is like you can mass produce trust, you can mass produce understanding, you can mass produce cultural relevancy and growth by incorporating those things into, into your lessons. So when, you, when, you're, when you're talking about those black kids, the first thing is like when, they, when they're talking about um, respect and, and man, they ain't going to let nobody disrespect me, man, their teacher just disrespecting me, it, that ain't got nothing to do with the disrespect that has to do with the trust because... Felicia got kids in her class that she can disrespect in their face, then call their mama and tell them that they that she disrespected them and everything good. Girl, you you should have did that. If it would have been me, I'd like everything is fine. And it has nothing to do with her being black. It has to do with the trust that she's gained with that student and the trust that she's gained with that family. So when we are talking to our our teachers about um getting those uh about getting those black boys not getting but what am i trying to say about um connecting that's the word i was looking for connecting with our black boys then it's about building that level of trust now it's not just it's not going to be easy it's not going to be because they going we see fake that's the other thing i tell teachers all the time is kids see fake and they know fake so you can't do this superficially Right. You have to give of yourself. The reason why I was great at building connections with my kids is because I talked about my family. I talked about my upbringing. I talked about things that I went through. When you talk about things that you've gone through and they can see you as a regular person, that establishes that trust. And then they start sharing a little piece of them. Once they share one thing with me, I know I got them. Right. Yeah. Same way with teachers. Once once that student shares one thing with you, you got them forever. Like they, they going to do whatever it is that you're asking them to do. You say, Hey man, you need to sit down and shut up. <laughs> in kindergarten, they would have said, Ooh, shut up is a bad word. In high school, sit down and shut up. You're right, Mr. Riley. I'm tripping. Right. And it's not because of, it's not because of the fact that I'm black It's because I've, we've had that trust. We've joked around. Why man, you, man, boy, you better shut up. Right. So shut up is cool in that sense. But then when I'm getting on, hey, say, it's not the time you need to sit down and shut up. He understands that too. You feel me? And so we we build that trust. When you build that trust, you can talk to them like like they here at home. Like it's not, 
it's not like something that they haven't heard at, at the house, but you have to build that trust in order for them to see you as somebody who has their best interests at heart. At home, they know their mama got their best interests at heart. When you're at the school, you have to show them like, look, man, I'm not telling you to sit down and shut up because I'm just embarrassing you in front of your friends. I'm telling you because I'm about to teach you something that you're going to need. And right now you need to focus and you need to listen. So, again, you can mass produce trust. You can mass produce understanding and you can mass produce cultural relevancy and growth. And I think that's how you connect to black boys and connect to these kids. Well, bro. Hey. I'm going to tell you what, man. It's, it's probably the most intellectual conversation we done had up on here. But, uh, hey, hey, Felicia and Terry both had me like, hey, okay, I got you. You know, so, hey, I appreciate that, y'all. Um, you know, a lot of it's, times... It isn't like, even good if that doesn't happen. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you leave, like, I ain't learned shit from that. You know what I'm saying? Like, they ain't moved me in no kind of way. I mean, did you even learn? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, I mean... Hey, we talk like this all the time, man. Like, we we... We have these conversations, and I'm gonna tell I'm gonna tell you, Brian. Like I went through it. Um, I went through it last year, where I, where I felt like our campus wasn't connecting with our kids. And so, what I'm telling you isn't something that 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 just like, oh man, he. No, we went through some things in order to get to this point to where I'm like, okay, I know how we connect to these kids. I know what we need to do. So this, don't think this was easy. Don't think that this was just oh, uh, this this came from from um this came from experience this came from going through this came from feeling misunderstood uh, about about a lot of things that was happening going on on our campus to get to this point now i got you and my and my thought of this of this episode was you know i feel like right now as a country black folks we have we have the country's attention right now so like you know so in terms of like you know hey Let's try some things in the building. You know what I'm saying? Let, let's not, not, not let's not worry about the district. Let's try some things in the building to, to address some of these issues that we have in our school. And so, you know, and I appreciate y'all, you know, all for y'all's insight, you know, on things, you know, because, you know, you can't learn without perspective. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that. So, Frank, what you want to do? You know what? Like you said, you hit the nail on the head. This was probably the most intellectual um, podcast we've had ever. And, um, I want to thank Mr. Riley, Mr. Menez, Ms. Palmer, Mr. Setloff, and Ms. Williams for joining in today. Um, that was excellent. I feel like we need a uh, follow-up show. You know, I feel like we need more of this at least once a month. So um, if you guys and ladies are free, I would love to do this again in the future. Um, I'm down, man. I'm down. Yeah. Um, yeah, you got me. Yes, sir. Frank, can I shamelessly plug my podcast too, or you can edit it yeah, out. No, 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 no. <laughs> really? Me? I'm like, Come I'm on. Fine with you it out. <laughs> no, see, that's not how I am. Go ahead. Throw it out there. Throw it out there. Girl. I'm like, but could you build me up as a black yes, man? Yes, yes, yeah. Throw it out there. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> so if you could too, if you enjoyed these conversations, um, follow me for even more, y'all. Uh, and we're going to have Riley on there too in some future ones. So. Uh, it is Black Joy and Bootstraps. Again, Black Joy and Bootstraps. You can find me on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Oh, uh, and you're, you're, you're competition. You're competition. Hey, hey, hold up. No competition. There's no competition. I'm we joking, just out here uh, helping joking. each other. <laughs> so, yes, and yeah, plug, that in, plug that in one more time so they can hear you. Sure. Uh, Black Joy and Bootstraps. Uh, you guys can listen to the intro to, found out, to find out how I got the name, too, but you can find me on Insta, Facebook, Black Joy and Bootstraps. You can also find me 
um, on for the podcast itself, Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. There you go, listeners. You Thank know you. what I'm saying? On the Ben Frank Now Show, you heard a young lady. Make sure you tune in and check her out. We're 3,000 deep. But hey, seriously, though, I really do appreciate all you guys and ladies taking your time for coming in and expressing yourself. Um, Jason, got anything you want yeah. to say before we sign off? No, this was good. Good learning experience. I mean, really can't say a whole lot. I mean, this was great. Thank you for having me. Man, hey, man, you're old school, man. People don't realize this dude, Jason, this dude, got he got game on the basketball court. <laughs> Jason, I've been knowing Jason since I was I don't know about that. <laughs> I've, been knowing Jason, I appreciate it. I've been knowing Jason since I was a little kid, man. But, Jason, I really do appreciate everything, man, and hope the family is doing pretty good, man. And um, Stay safe out there during the COVID season, man. And um, We're Hoosiers, man. I love you, man. And um, like I said, thank you for your time, bro. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And Miss Jimenez, anything you want to follow up before we sign off? Um, just that I I appreciate uh, the dialogue. I appreciate everything, Brian. I appreciate the pushback because um, we need uh, black people are not monolithic. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, and so I think it's always important. Uh, and it was very cordial. Uh, and I think that people, folks need to see how to agree to disagree. Um, and so I, I appreciated that. Uh, and so you guys can, yeah, anytime you want me on, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that. And plug that one more time. Plug your podcast one more time. Black Joy and Bootstraps, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hit me up. There you go. You hear it, crowd. You hear it. Mr. Riley. I want to call you Teddy Riley for so long. I'm sorry. Uh, everybody do. Everybody does. Everybody does. Like, I'm, I'm so used to it. Everybody does. Seriously. Yes, sir. They do. Um, uh, before I say my last thing, say Felicia's being modest, man. If y'all check out her, her podcast, it's super dope. The last one she did is over resume writing. Bro, blew my mind. Like, it, okay. it's... It's so dope. She had one of our um, teachers' husbands on, and and bro, he was spitting. He was dropping gems the whole the whole what forty five minutes to an hour. He was dropping gems. Um, wow. But the last thing I want to say, man, is um, we we talked a lot about um, um, our black students, which we we definitely that's that's my people. But my new passion is is our Hispanic students, and one of the things that I think about is, is the parents. And this is just one thing I just want to say before we get off here. And I think that, I think that our experience and their experience is so similar in the fact that I, I saw a meme that said that, um, that Spanish speaking parents that, that speak broken English, we tend to look down on not realizing that they know completely a whole different language, right? They know a completely different language. And so they are learning a new language. So that broken language that they're speaking speaks to their intelligence right now and and they are intelligent and i think about that in the fact that our families right when we think about the genius in the black family a lot of times when our families and our parents come up and they loud and they trying to that's a different language that's a different language that our community speaks that's why when I come out and I speak to our black parents, they calm down, they know what's up, right? And so a lot of times what happened in both the black and the brown community is that when when they are misunderstood, people think that they aren't intelligent, but we are. And so um, I want all those people, all my black and brown people to know that y'all are gifted, y'all are brilliant, y'all are intelligent, and we are working to catch up to you. We are working 
to learn your culture, we are working. And I'm talking about we as in the school system. We are putting in that work to be able to engage you better, engage you more, and build the type of school that we deserve. So There you go. That sounds good. And before I go to Ms. Williams, on the next episode, I would like to have you guys back on maybe next month. But I would like to talk about, I know we're talking about black and brown, but we have failed to talk about what about the poor white kid? Seriously, what about the poor white kid? You know, I mean, we have not, we didn't touch base on them. So we'll talk about that on another episode. But Miss Williams, anything you'd like to say? I can't, you can't just shake your head. You got to say something, yes or no. I mean, you got listeners. I don't have anything to say um, except have a great weekend. Okay. This was an easy podcast for me. <laughs> this was interesting. This was very interesting. There's a lot of and easy. Yeah. Once we got on. This was very intellectual, a lot to digest. And um honestly, I don't think I will have to go back and do too much editing, but we're an hour and forty seven minutes into the Ben Frank show. But it was interesting though. And um last but not least, Miss <laughs> Kelly Palmer. I think the only thing that I, uh, I mean, not the only thing, but one of the things that still resonates with me is we've talked a lot about educating the black community and about the parents and the kids and the brown community. But I mean, when it all comes down to it, white's still the majority and they need the most education out of all of us. Mm. And, you know, the the lack of acceptance, the cultural un- misunderstandings, the the stereotypes that they still buy into, like, hello, I know that's me too. But just as a race, like in a culture, we have a lot of learning to do. And I don't want that to go to the back burner because I really feel like no change is going to happen if the majority doesn't come in and join the change. There you go. There you go. Stay on for a minute. I need to ask you a question, but you said something about going to Orange, Texas, vital that area. So I want to ask you a question about that. Okay, and um, Mr. Stallings. What's happening? Hey, so I just want to I just want to again thank everybody who took the time to, to come on the show. Uh, to Carl, I appreciate you uh, going through your Rolodex and you know pulling through because I mean I know you know I, I wanted somebody that had you know that didn't know me didn't want to like you know I didn't want to like have any issues of like talking to someone who's already had this conversation with me before. So I appreciate you you know, finding folks for us. And, uh, you know, Jason, I appreciate you coming on as well. What about me? Uh, <laughs> what about me? I, mean, I, brought, I, mean, I brought my daughter mom on. I have, we have so much differences and she came on and... And <laughs> <laughs> hey, you can toot your home when I'm done. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, mean, I, pre- I appreciate y'all and everything. And, uh, you know, and I know, like you know, I, I do do I do a lot of pushback on the show. If anybody's ever listened to the show, I do a lot of pushback. I do play a lot of the devil's advocate. A lot, you know, you know, when it comes to when it comes to the black children, like that's that is my, you know, I care about all kids, but I know that that my that our black students are behind. So like that is a passion of mine. So like, um, but yeah, like you know, I, I you know, like uh, Felicia said, like you know, black folks, we're not we're not monolith. You know, what I'm saying I. I come from a I come from a different perspective, uh, a different perspective, um, you know, and I speak on it, you know. So, so I appreciate you know the growth that we all can you know give each other, and yeah, I hope we can do this again uh, shortly. There you go. Hey, and I appreciate everybody for um, listening and downloading this episode. Like I said, we're at three thousand downloads already within three months, and we want to keep it going. I appreciate um, our esteemed guest today, 
Excellent. Excellent damn show. So, hey, like I always say, it doesn't matter your race, religion, your sexual orientation, or your social economic standings. We love you on the Ben Frank Now show. Make sure you tune in to us on uh, maybe next Sunday. Well, I think it's next Sunday with the Sunday with Stalling show. And once again, we love you. Take care of yourself. And we're out. I threw my